stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Let's pray together. Lord God, would you allow us to be obedient to that command that we might cease regarding ourselves and instead regard you and you alone? Lord, we thank you that you have called us to be your people, that you love us, that you laid down your life for us, that these things, as we reflect upon them, humble us by how glorious you are. And I pray that as we look at your word this morning, you would glorify yourself, and we would see your glory and your beauty, and we would be humbled. Lord, I think about the other churches that are gathering this morning here in in our city, We pray that, like our church, you would increase their faithfulness, even as you increase our faithfulness. We pray that your word would be rightly taught. We pray that your people would be sanctified. We pray that hearts would turn to worship, that sinners would repent, that Christians would be encouraged. Lord, would you work through the teaching of your word this morning in every place that it's being taught. And we also think of our ministry partners, Father, those who we support financially and through prayers as they labor in the work that they're doing. God, would you bless them, encourage them, lift up their hearts, allow them to see fruitfulness for your kingdom. And we do echo Rick's prayer again, Lord, for our body, that you would grow us and bless us, that we might love one another more faithfully, even as we love you more faithfully. So again, Father, humble us and bless us through your word this morning, we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Romans chapter 5. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. We have a little welcome table back here, and they are available. Uh, Feel free to grab one or even kind of raise up your hand, and somebody will bring you one. And you can take that home. Uh, Please, let that be just our gift to you. And we're going to be in Romans chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 this morning. So if you have your Bible open, follow along with me. I still hear pages. I love that sound, so I love to wait for it. It's okay. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
More than that, we also rejoice in God through whom, or through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well, our topic for this morning is humility. And the idea is that the gospel fills us with humility. Seeing Jesus rightly in all of his glory and all of his grace causes us to clothe ourselves in humility in response to him. And we've spent the last couple weeks in this series called How the Gospel Works. And the big idea is that the gospel actually changes us in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. These work together to transform our hearts. And so the gospel is not just something we believe. It is something that reshapes us in an ongoing way every single day. So specifically for our subject matter this morning, the gospel gives us humility by lifting us out of self-hatred and keeping us from self-love. The gospel wrenches our eyes off of us entirely and rightly fixes them upon Jesus. Let me say it again. The gospel gives us humility by lifting us out of our self-hatred and keeping us from self-love. The gospel wrenches our eyes off of us entirely and fixes them rightly on Christ. But if you were paying uh, close attention to the passage of Scripture that we just read, you might be concerned that these verses in Romans 5, 1 through 11, don't talk about humility. You don't find the word humble. You don't find the word humility. You don't find the word pride or arrogance. So in what way do they relate to the subject of humility? They're not about humility at all at least on the surface. Instead, they're about the fundamental basics of the gospel. And that's the point, isn't it? Because the point of the series that we've been working through is to see how the gospel works. And Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is a beautiful picture of the gospel. It explains that we have peace with God because we've been justified. That's declared innocent before God because of the work of Jesus Christ. It tells us we, re- we have received God's grace through faith, trust in Christ. It explains to us that even our suffering is a great gift from God because as difficult as it is, it sanctifies us and grows us in likeness to Him. These verses tell us about God pouring out His love upon us instead of pouring, up- pouring out His wrath upon us for sin. It speaks about the gift of the Holy Spirit that God has given to us. It explains that we were ugly sinners when Jesus died for us, but that we've been given reconciliation with God through his death and through the life of Christ. And that's the gospel. The power of God accomplishing our salvation. These verses magnify God in his act of saving us. And by peering into these truths, by reflecting on them, by feasting on them in our souls, we can't help but become people of great humility, can we? We can't possibly see and understand everything that God has done for us and then still be proud. So even though these verses in Romans 5 don't mention humility in that word, they make us humble by reminding us of what God has done for us through the work of Jesus Christ. 
Now, we could go to other passages of Scripture that specifically speak of humility, but there's plenty for us to chew on in these verses and plenty for us to put in practice just by looking at the principles of the gospel. And I hope that I can kind of unpack that for you this morning. Before we get into the details of the text, though, let me explain a few things about humility by drawing out what I think are the three primary enemies of humility. Okay? I think everybody knows what the greatest enemy of humility is, right? Pride, arrogance, self-importance. Humility dies when we think too highly of ourselves. For the sake of our time together this morning, I'm going to associate this idea of pride with the idea of self-love. The prideful person is really deeply in love with themselves. They think mostly, first and foremost, about themselves. They think primarily about their own abilities, their own accomplishments, their own performance. They love themselves and they are filled with self-importance. The prideful person loves to be praised, to be honored. And I think verse 6 in our text puts to death pride in the heart of the Christian by reminding us that when God first poured out his love on us, we were weak. We were ungodly. We were deeply in need and undeserving. And when we look at our relationship to God, pride evaporates because we realize that we brought nothing to this relationship that when God found us attractive. It was not because of us. We were sinners and undeserving of any grace or any affection from God. More on that in a few minutes. The second enemy of humility is equally dangerous, but far more subtle. It's actually self-hatred. Believe it or not, self-hatred will also kill humility. It just attacks from a totally different direction. And self-hatred is actually a huge problem in our culture. It's what's produced so many ridiculously stupid self-help books and so much, or a multi-billion dollar industry for antidepressants, right? I'm almost certain that many of you in this room probably struggle with feelings of self-hatred. Although maybe most people don't even know that that's true about you. Maybe you haven't realized it's even true about yourself. But self-hatred kills humility because it's still self-obsession. Instead of dwelling on God and his love and his mercy, the peace that we have with God, as Scripture says, self-hatred is born out of an unhealthy focus on our own depravity. It is self-obsession, and in that way, it is still much like pride. But instead of obsessing with how great we are, it obsesses over how awful we are. And there can be no humility where a person is self-absorbed, even if that self-absorption is absorption in how awful they are, even if it's an act of self-hatred. And I think verse 5 prevents Christians from falling into the cycle of self-hatred when it says that God's love has been poured into our hearts. I wish that you could comprehend what that means. I wish that I could comprehend what that means. God's love outshines our depravity, and it lifts us out of the self-obsession of self-hatred. But again, more on that in just a minute when we get further into the text. 
The third great enemy of humility is false humility. False humility denies what is true in an effort to appear humble. False humility is when the lips speak self-abasing, self-deprecating things all while the heart swells with a secret self-importance. False humility gives the appearance of being modest even as it rejoices in being noticed. False humility is deceptive because it's just pride in disguise. It's still self-obsession. It's just masked by meekness. And I think verse 11 of our text is going to kill false humility by reminding us that we rejoice in God, not in ourselves. All right, so then what is humility? What does real, sincere humility actually look like? Well, I want you to understand that I I believe that real humility is simply honest. It is honesty about who we are, both the depths of our sinfulness and also the heights of God's love for us. And in contrast, the enemies of humility that I just outlined, they're full of lies. They're full of deceit. They're dishonest. They lie about our identity, either telling us we're much greater than we are or telling us we're much more awful. They lie about what is really important. They lie about our motivations. They deceive by putting us at the center of the story. And in contrast, humility is merely honesty about self that leads to self-disinterest. Humility is really self-disinterest. It keeps me from inserting myself into everything, making everything about me. It puts God at the center. And see, the thing is, humility doesn't even really think about itself at all. That's one thing that I hope that you take from our time together this morning. Humility is marked by self-disinterest. And so this creates a real conundrum for us because as soon as you begin to think about being humble, you've really stopped being humble. As soon as you put yourself under the microscope for self-evaluation, you've blown it because you've become the object of your attention. Like a friend once said to me, I've really been growing in my humility, I'm proud to say. (laughs) It just doesn't work. And see, the difficulty with humility is that it can never grow as long as we're looking at ourselves. Because as soon as we become the focus, humility fades. As soon as we stop considering God or considering others and we start considering ourselves, we've already strayed from the path of humility, which really prefers not to think about itself at all. So as we begin to think about ourselves and we become the center of attention, humility sneaks out the back door. Because the essence of humility is self-disinterest. So now let's look at our text so I can attempt to draw this out from the wisdom of God. And I really want to break the text into two parts, verses 1 through 5. So let me read those first, and then we'll move on to 6 through 11. It says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, 
because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I think a serious reflection on these verses is bound to bring an end to self-hatred, one of the great enemies of humility. Because these verses talk about us in relation to God's great love for us. We are the recipients of a wonderful gift of God's affection. And the emphasis and the glory of these verses, it all points to God who has done this thing, who through the person and work of Jesus Christ has declared us justified. It's a big word, but it's simple. That is to say we're no longer condemned for our sins because Christ bore our condemnation. And he's given us grace in place of it. Now, if you're anything like me, my own self-hatred really boils up from thinking too vigorously about what a wretched piece of crud I am. Maybe you can relate to that. When I begin to dwell on how, how far short I fall below the standards of God, I begin to obsess over my own insufficiency. I loathe my inability to obey God to love him, to be like him. I, I despise myself for coming up so short. I loathe my sin, and I loathe how much I seem to love my sin when I give in to temptation. And right there, through all of that self-obsession, I fall headlong into the narcissism of self-hatred. Instead of loving God, we end up loving, hating ourselves. How twisted is that? Instead of looking to God in our despair, we end up only looking at how despairing we are. And it might appear somewhat godly to hate yourself for sin, but in fact, it denies the power of God if you are a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean that we brush over our sin or our wretchedness. The Bible does not allow us to do that. We're going to deal with that in a minute when we get to verses 6 through 11. But the right response to our sin is to acknowledge it, to repent of it, and again lift our eyes to God, to admit that we have sin, and then to leave it behind as we press on towards Christ. Tragically, we see a wrong response to this right from the beginning. Adam and Eve sin, and we see them follow up their sin with even more sin. They were ashamed, and so they ran from God. Instead of running from sin to God. So we acknowledge our sin, but we don't wallow in it. We confess it to God. We turn away from it so that we can turn to Him. And so, sinner, don't hate yourself and run from God. Hate your sin and run to God. And this is important for us to remember because our culture tells us you need to have inner peace. The way that you do that is just come to terms with yourself. You need to love and embrace yourself. And that's how you will move from self-hatred to self-love. But that's a lie. And we're after a far greater treasure than just inner peace. We are after the far greater soul-satisfying peace with God. That's what humanity really needs, is peace with God, not inner peace. We find that in verse 1. And self-hatred can never be called humility because it ignores God. It is still focused on the self. 
And the remedy, which I believe we see clearly in verse 5, is to hope in God, to turn away from our shame and self-hatred, and to rest in what is true about who we are because of the work of Christ. That's the gospel. The wonderful truth that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And the fact of the matter is, if you are a Christian and you engage in self-hatred, you dishonor God. You heap shame upon the cross by thinking only of yourself instead of nothing of what Christ did for you on the cross. You mock the death and resurrection of Jesus in your self-hatred by failing to give God glory as the one who redeemed you while you were yet ugly and ungodly. When you engage in self-hatred, you actually reveal yourself to be proud and arrogant because you believe that what you think about yourself is greater than what God has said about you as a Christian. And I'm almost afraid to say that to somebody who struggles with self-hatred because you could grab that and think of it as one more reason to go and hate yourself. But the real point I'm trying to make here is that you need to stop thinking about yourself at all. What did the end of the verse in Isaiah say? Have no regard for man. Stop regarding man, for of what account is he? You need to think about God. You need to think about his love for you. You need to dwell on the truth of the gospel as it's taught in Scripture. That you are precious in the eyes of God. You were worth the death of his son. You need to think about the cross and the blood of Jesus shed for you. You need to think about the fact that you have peace with God through the saving work of Jesus. You need to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, not wallow in the misery of your sin. And so the antidote to self-hatred is reflecting on the love of God, which he has generously given out to us without a second thought. He has no regrets. If God has called us beloved, then how dare we oppose him with the arrogance of self-hatred? And for the self-haters in the room, let me be clear, you're not humble when you hate yourself. Satan may deceive you into thinking that's true, but that's not true. But you can be humble if you stop thinking about yourself and dwell instead upon the goodness of Jesus and God's love for you displayed in him. The gospel works by reminding us that we are God's beloved through Jesus Christ. Next, look at verses 6 through 11, which give us, I think, the antidote to pride and self-love and then also help us deal with false humility. Let me read these. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than, uh, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I told you I'd come back to this. 
Here we are presented with the awful condition of our fallen human hearts apart from God. Please don't misunderstand. Self-hatred is wrong. But you have every reason to hate yourself, if you're honest. How can man be proud at all when he sees himself in the way that these verses describe him before God's grace is offered to him? Apart from God, we are weak. We are ungodly. We are sinners. We are enemies of God, deserving of his wrath for sin. Christians are people who have embraced their neediness. And sometimes Christians are accused of being self-righteous, which is just an inexplicable idea to me. That should never be the case because we of all people should be most honest about how needy and desperate and broken we are. In that great parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, if you're not familiar with it, I encourage you, make a note, Luke 18. We see the Pharisee and the tax collector both come before the Lord in the temple. And the Pharisee is proud. He stands high before the throne of God, thinking highly of himself. He compares himself to the sinner, the tax collector. And all the while, he is utterly blind of his own neediness before God. He cannot see what a wretch he is. He's so in love with himself that he thinks that he can stand in the presence of God on his own merits. He's so foolish he cannot even recognize his own neediness. And he leaves the presence of God condemned by God for his self-righteousness, his self-love. In contrast, the tax collector, who we would expect to be sort of the scum of the earth, is not ashamed to admit that he is the scum of the earth. He is broken. He confesses his sin. He acknowledges it. He should hate himself for his failure to honor God. He weeps and he wails in misery for his sin, unable to even lift his eyes to gaze on God. But he cries out to God in his brokenness, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And in order to be humble, we have to start where the gospel starts, with the bad news, that Jesus didn't come for good people. He came for sinners. Jesus didn't die for us because we were mostly good with just a slight dash of evil. We were spiritually dead, with hearts that were utterly corrupt, without even a dash of good. To make us redeemable. Verse 8 tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, we start with an honest evaluation of ourselves, and then we do lift our eyes to the God who saves us. And in looking to Him, we are then pressed down further into humility before Him. Our arrogance is stripped away. Now, the prideful person will play a sneaky trick here sometimes. Maybe you've seen it or maybe you've done it. The prideful person will sometimes do the first step towards humility, which is take their eyes off of themselves. But instead of lifting their eyes to behold the glory of God, which will lead them to humility, they look laterally to somebody near them. They attempt to justify themselves through comparison, like the Pharisee. 
They think to themselves, I'm not such a bad guy. I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm pretty darn good. But in doing that, they only further solidify their own self-love and condemnation. Because the standard is not that we need to be better than somebody else. That's easy. Like all it takes is a five-minute internet search to find that I'm a pretty good person. God's standard is perfection, holiness, which nobody can do. The gospel tells us you cannot achieve God's perfect standard on your own. This must be given to you as a gift through the righteous life and death and resurrection of Christ. So the antidote to pride, or I'm sorry, yeah, the antidote to pride is also simply looking to Christ. He was perfect, but he became wretched for our sin so that we who were wretched might receive his perfection. Like verse 10 says here, we are saved by his life, not our own. And so humility kills arrogance by reminding us that Jesus didn't die for us because we were good. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was all a gracious act of Jesus. We brought nothing to the table. Then finally, it's verse 11 that puts an end to false humility. Let me remind you that false humility gives the appearance of being modest even as it rejoices secretly in being noticed. The problem is that false humility is still self-obsessed. It's still self-centered. It's narcissism gilded with a meekness. It looks great on the outside, but the stink of death is on the inside. And this is a huge issue for Christians, I think, false humility. Because we know that we're supposed to be humble, but we still enjoy the praise of man. We still seek the praise of others, and then we pretend to shrug it off with our mouths as we deny their praise, all while our hearts secretly revel in the joy of being noticed. And this is false humility. Basically, when we lie to people who praise us by claiming, oh, it was nothing. No, no, I'm not, I'm not that good at that sort of thing. Instead of just giving the praise and thanks to God who bore fruit through us, acknowledging that God has done a good work through us. In verse 11, we see that the Christian who has been filled up with the love of God through the Holy Spirit rejoices only in God through Jesus Christ. They don't deny the fruit of the Spirit of God when they do good. They accept the praise and they turn in their hearts to pass it on to God by His grace as they rejoice that He has chosen to work through them. And so the humble person doesn't hide from praise. They don't shun praise. The humble person is just indifferent to praise because they rejoice in Jesus. Praise directed at them gets joyfully and honestly redirected towards God, even if that's only something that happens in their heart and never verbally. They receive the praise and they quietly lay it down at the feet of Jesus, who receives all who deserves all honor and glory. The praise they receive does well up within them, but only as one more reason to turn their eyes to Christ and reflect on the riches of his gifts. So in summary, the humble person does not hate themselves because they're indifferent to self. 
And the humble person doesn't swell with self-love because they're already filled with love for God. There's no room for self-love. The truly humble person thinks only of God and then secondarily thinks of others in imitation of God, but they rarely, if ever, think about themselves. So let me go out on a limb here and guess that you've got some work to do in this area. If you're not utterly self-deceived, you may see some places in your life where you need to grow in humility. If we're honest, we probably fit into one of these categories. You might be the arrogant self-hater, fixated on your own sin, denying the truth of God's love, thinking only about yourself when you should be reflecting on the love of God. Or you might be an arrogant self-lover, proud at how great you are, denying the truth of your neediness, rejoicing how much further along you are than everyone around you. Or you might be deceitful in your false humility, playing the game, leading others to think that you think nothing of yourself, all while you love the praise they gave you, instead of rejoicing in God at the work of His Spirit through you. And the temptation, if you do fit into one of these categories, will be to leave here and start thinking about ways to be more humble. You might ask your spouse or a good friend, hey, will you give me an honest self-evaluation, which, you know, would be a good exercise to do sometime, just be prepared to not like what they say. But you might ask them, give me a real honest self-evaluation about whether I'm humble or not. And from there, you might craft some steps to grow in humility, some goals to put in place. But don't fall into that trap. I hope by now you see how absurd that is. That is not the way to humility. Because as soon as you approach the subject that way, you have missed the point. The goal is simply to think on Christ, to dwell on Christ, to love Christ, to draw near to Him, and He will humble you, I assure you. And here's the frustrating thing about humility. If you actually had it, you probably wouldn't know. And you certainly wouldn't care. Because you'd be too wrapped up in loving Jesus to even notice. To even pause from that glorious task to consider yourself. You'd be so fixated on him that you would almost never think about yourself. And so don't give yourself the goal of being more humble. Give yourself the goal of loving God more, finding more joy in Him, finding deeper satisfaction in Him. Don't even think about being humble. Don't think about yourself at all. Give no regard to man. Of what account is he? Instead, think about Christ. Think about Romans 5. Think about the beauty of Jesus and all that He's done for you and the way that He loves you. And one day in the future, if you are successful in wrenching your eyes off of yourself and setting them on Christ, I assure you, you will hear those glorious words, well done, good and faithful servant. But you know what? You probably won't even notice that you're being praised because you'll be too busy praising Him. You'll only be interested in Him because all of the self-interest will have been purged from your soul along the way. And you'll rejoice in God freely and abundantly through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have been given this wonderful gift of God's love. And even as you hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, your desire will be only to decrease more.
that he might increase more. Let's pray. God, would you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us take our eyes off of ourselves and fix them on you. And as we look to you, Lord, would you give us the gift of allowing us to see your glory in ever greater degrees so that we are more and more captivated by your grace, your power, your love, your beauty, your authority, your goodness, your holiness, your righteousness. God, I pray that you would draw us out of ourselves and deeper into you. We thank you for this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit that encourages us in these things, that teaches us about your love, that gives us peace with you. And so, Father, make us humble. In Christ's name, for his sake, amen.